Thank you, James O. 10 a.m., how are we doing? That was weak. 10 a.m., how are we doing? I am very excited to be wrapping up this uh, series. Uh, I got to kick it off a couple of weeks ago, and we get to wrap it up today. But this, again, is just a mini-series within the book of Acts. Next week, we'll still be in the book of Acts, but jumping into a brand-new mini-series. And I want to get you caught up. And as we wrap up this message number four, um, I've given this message the title, The Power We Need and the Fear to Hold It. The Power We Need and the fear to hold it. I'd encourage you to take notes because it's gonna be a good one. I think when we talk about the power we need as South Africans, we know power is important because so much of it gets shared. Uh, I always say, it's always good to preach the Sunday after the Springboks win. And uh, for some of us, we nearly missed seeing that happen because at my house, load shedding kicked in at 6 p.m. last night. And so I'm not ashamed to say, because we're in church and it's a judgment-free zone, uh, but the second half, while load shedding had kicked in, I did forsake my wife to bath our kids alone. And I went and found a place at Rock Cottage so that I could watch the rest of the game and watch us beat Argentina. Not quite crack the, uh, the points difference so we could pip the, the All Blacks. But hey, it was still a win. It's always good to be on a Sunday on the back of a Springbok victory. But I think we understand power. But when we get into Acts chapter 19, where we're going to be today, um, I think the power we need very clearly as we've tracked through the book of Acts is the power in the name of Jesus. Because we're going to see the power in the name of Jesus come to the fore. But the question mark is, as that power is moving, do we have the fear necessary to hold it? And I'm going to talk about why, 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 we, why we do need that. I want to track this spread that we've watched through um, the book of Acts. And very specifically in this series, Salt and Light. Um, and I'll catch you up if you've missed any. We've been tracking uh, the missionary journeys of the Apostle Paul. So as Paul's heart was grabbed by God and he gave him this mission to take the gospel, the good news, to both Jew and Gentile and plant churches throughout all of the Roman Empire at that time, the known world, we actually found him go out on these missionary journeys to do just that. And so I'll take you right back. I'm actually gonna give you a map um, because that's cool to have. James is so excited that I have maps in, in the preach. Um, But map number one is this. This is his first missionary journey. I'll take you back to week number one where I kicked off the series. We were in Acts chapter 13, where Paul is actually in Antioch. Paul, please note the Apostle Paul, not George, as uh, Vorno let us know last week. I'm going to make fun of him every gathering about this because it's just the funniest thing ever. Who is George? Like, no one knows. Like, at least if it was a biblical name, it would have made sense. Um, But Paul's in Antioch. He had planted the first Gentile Jesus-believing church, and from Antioch, him and Barnabas get sent out, and they go on this short missionary journey with a head through Cyprus, and that's where we met Sergius Paulus in week number one, uh, as we saw in Acts 13, and he heads through uh, many parts and many towns in Galatia, planting churches, and heads back to Antioch. He then kicks off into a second missionary journey, where now he actually meets, takes Silas along the way, Paul, uh, Barnabas goes a different way, and he heads up through the inland, all the way through the top of the Roman empire and meets the cities he had gone in before in Galatia. The spirit actually tells him don't go into Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey, but actually head further north towards Macedonia. And he gets to a city called Philippi. And in Philippi, as James looked at in uh, Acts chapter 16, he actually finds himself in jail with Silas. We get to meet characters like Lydia, um, but in that jail, uh, a jailer gets saved, a Gentile Roman big military man. And a church is planted in Philippi. 
I think I, I just want to throw it out there. The structure and the process and plan of Paul was always to plant churches wherever he went, build in leadership, and then he would move on and do it again. But he would come back and visit so that he could build up the churches and make sure they're doing well. And he also would even write letters to them. And that, so that's what the epistles in the New Testament are. They're actually Paul's letters, his correspondence to churches he had planted. And so when he writes Philippians, it was to the church in Philippi that he had planted. That's who he is speaking to. And because it is scripture, God breathed, God inspired, it means that it speaks to us because the church didn't end in, in the book of Acts. It has continued even today in us. He heads down and he gets to a place called Ephesus. Ephesus is actually where we're going to be in Acts chapter 19 because he goes back there. But that's where Vorno kicked us in uh, in Acts chapter 18 where we meet Priscilla and Aquila and some crazy things happens. He begins uh, the, F the Ephesian church and plants it there and it starts to grow. It's a small thing at this time, but he says even in his prayer, I pray that I can come back to you. If it's God, God's will, I'll come back. And that's actually what happens in the third journey uh, where we'll be today. He starts out again from Antioch and he makes his way around uh, and gets to Ephesus. And that's where we are in Acts chapter 19. So verse one starts out like this. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. Why don't you pray with me and we'll jump into this. Father God, I love watching that you're a God who doesn't just give us a command, who doesn't just lay out a battle plan, but you're the God who empowers, encourages, and exhorts us all the way to its completion. You gave the command that your gospel should start in Jerusalem, go to Judea, go to Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. And through the book of Acts, we see that happen. We are sitting in this place because of what you started back then. Lord, the Ephesian church, what we see in these events in Acts chapter 19, these are seeds that you use to grow a significant large church that changes all of human history, that changes us even today. And so, Lord, it's my prayer that you would challenge each person where they are, that you would challenge us in our hearts, that, Lord, you would be the one who aligns what has gone misaligned, that you would fix what needs fixed, that you would bring restoration to what needs to be restored, and that, Lord, we would be set up as ones who will be salt and light to the world that you call us to in our places, in our spaces, and in our relationships. And everybody said, amen. Acts chapter 19 is one of the craziest chapters in all of the early church. The events that go down are crazy. But this idea of the power we need, as I mentioned, being the power in the name of Jesus, actually I wanna take a look at under these three headings. The first one is speak the name, then fear the name, then honor the name. We're gonna watch the spread of the name of Jesus and what it does, but first heading, speak the name. It continues in verse eight, it says, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reason and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way, what Christians were known as before they were known as Christians, before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the, the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. The name of Jesus gets spoken by the Apostle Paul in the city of Ephesus. 
And what would happen is a massive explosion and revival of the gospel of the early church, even in the Ephesian city. But I want us to just for a moment take a look at where that name was getting spoken. Ephesus itself. Ephesus as as a city was significant. It was the fourth largest city in the Roman uh, Empire, and it was set up perfectly to be a traveling port. Everybody would come through there because it opened up the whole world. If you were coming from Rome and you were going anywhere, anywhere west in the empire, you were going to go through the city of Ephesus. It had an amazing bay, an amazing port, and it was not a bad place to be. I want to give you a picture of what it looks like today. That's the port of Ephesus today. As you can see, cruise ship. It is a tourist attraction. Thousands upon thousands of tourists actually visit every single year because the Ephesian uh, ruins are actually just over that hill. And so this connection point between Rome and the rest of the Roman Empire meant that so many people would flood into the city. And in that city, there is so much going on that I think we could miss if we don't realize where this was happening. If you were... In the ancient world, going to Ephesus, there was two things you were going to take a look at. There was two things you wouldn't miss a visit. There was two icons in Ephesus. The first one is its theater. This is what it looked like. It was a 24,000-seater amphitheater built into a mountain. It was, in the ancient world, an architectural marvel. You have to understand, you would be used to living in your small village or town, which was only a few hundred people, and to sit in something like that with thousands of people at one time, being entertained, and the Romans knew what to do, they knew how to entertain. It would be going on 24-7, every single day of the year, and they also were smart because they made it free. And so they knew how to entertain, but also to educate. And so it was a masterclass in uh, stimulating the economy of Ephesus, but also a masterclass in marketing. Because through that entertainment, they were able to pervade Roman thought and Roman ideology. And because you had people coming into the city, visiting, and then going out, it meant that they could then take that Roman thought, that Roman ideology to the places that they lived. It was a masterclass. It drew people in. It meant that... Ephesus was set up as this economic behemoth. The second place you would never miss is actually this temple of Artemis or Diana. Uh, Artemis was her Greek name. Diana was her Roman name. It was actually one of the wonders of the ancient world. And so it had these 117 columns. And each one of them was about 18 meters high, 15 tons in weight. And As this temple was set up, it would worship Artemis, Diana. She was the goddess of fertility. And it actually was built on this ancient asteroid uh, site where an asteroid had hit and its protruding rock and the facade actually gave this female image, a a female body that you could see in the rock. She had almost like a mermaid-like tail and then had on her torso multiple breasts. This is what it looks like. I'm kidding, we're not gonna show that in church. I don't wanna get emails tomorrow. But obviously that would hint at where this idea of the goddess of fertility came from because when it came to growth or health or multiplication, she was always the one who could bless that. And in a society that was still so agrarian, so dependent on on farming and your crops, it meant she was well revered. But in the midst of this temple, this great, one of the, literally one of the ancient world's seven wonders, 
they build this temple in worship of her. So it would be quite common that you could buy a, a little idol of Artemis or Diana and you could take it home and plant it in your field so that your crop would be blessed or take it and plant it under your house so that your family would flourish. But as any goddess, she needs to be worshipped. So it's not just about the coin you give to uh, buy the idol, but also even the act of worship that would happen in the temple. And so within those 117 columns, you had multiple smaller rooms, which were housed hundreds of priestesses at the time, so that any time of day, you could give your worship to a Diana, and that would come in the midst of fertility through sexual pleasure. And so it was a place of very dark magic. See, its sister city was Corinth, which was just across the Aegean Sea. It's actually where Paul had just come from as he came to Ephesus. And while, where Corinth was known for its sexuality and lust, Ephesus had made a name for itself because of this spirituality it had. It had become famous for its dark magic, its incantations. It was a city that was obsessed with blessing and cursing. And all of these things could be purchased at a price. And so spirituality was on offer and the menu was vast in the midst of Ephesus. This is actually what Shakespeare writes about Ephesus in his play, The Comedy of Errors. He says this, They say this town is full of dark working sorcerers that change the mind. Soul-killing witches that deform the body, disguised cheaters, and many such like liberties of sin. This was the dark heart of Ephesus. And it was that mess that Paul enters into and begins to preach a new power, a new name. He will speak a new spirituality, and it's the power in the name of Jesus. And as he always does, he follows his process where he goes to the synagogue first, the open door, and he'll, he'll meet with the Jews and, and argue for Jesus as Messiah. And some will believe and become believers, and others will reject, and eventually it gets so awkward that he gets kicked out of the synagogue, and now actually needs a space for this new fledgling church to meet and to gather and to worship together. And so they meet in one of the lecture halls of the city where there would be teachers all day long giving different views on spirituality and powers and different names. But in this hall of Tyrannus, and I'd love to know what the story was, because you don't get the name Tyrannus, meaning tyrant, without being a bit of a weird guy and a bad guy. And yet you open your doors to your property for a Christian church to meet and gather and worship. I'm pretty sure something happened in a heart there. But Paul will meet with those early believers in the hall of Tyrannus, and they'll meet there for two years, where every single day he will teach and he will preach, and they will worship together, and person after person after person are actually being saved and coming to know Jesus as Lord. And so something is starting in the book, uh, in, the, in the place of, Ephes of Ephesus, where God is moving in great power. And what comes in the, this Acts chapter 19 are some crazy events. I, I, I said it. It's, like, it's some of the craziest events you will see in the early church. But I think it's so important to not miss the challenge to us and also the application from this. The challenge to us is, are we being as faithful with the mission that God has given us here as those in Ephesus were? Because I love that it says that actually through what was going on in Ephesus, all of Asia heard the name of Jesus, meaning every person. 
And so that wasn't just coming through Paul's mouth and his preaching in Ephesus. What it meant was that there was people being affected and completely changed by what what was happening in the hall of Tyrannus. And they were taking it home and speaking the name of Jesus there. And so I question, if God's given us this space, this place, are we being faithful in that mission to share it outside to the place and space God has called us to? And the application for us on the heels of what would be a huge revival within the city of Ephesus, I think we know that revival is something that we desire. I think there are many of us who would say we desire to see God move powerfully and miraculously, just like we're gonna see he does in Acts chapter 19. But what I don't want us to miss is that revival always happens in prepared soil. Because you could look at the events that are about to come up in Acts chapter 19 and think they're so sudden and so out of the blue and, and it's just God deciding to move in a huge way and so why doesn't he do that? But you can't forget and can't miss that there was two plus years of faithful, consistent sowing of God's truth, of God's word, of his people meeting together and worshiping together and then God works powerfully and miraculously. I think we we do ourselves a disservice when we have this desire to see God move powerfully. But we forget that these moments, that where we get to meet together on Sundays in city group, uh, even a coffee with a friend, nothing can ever be mundane or routine out of the ordinary because actually God calls us to be consistent and faithful in preparing the soil so that when his seed is ready, it comes. If we desire a revival, we can't ever scorn the consistent, faithful meeting together of God's people because that is what prepares the soil. That's the first one, speak the name. Next heading is fear the name. It's about to get crazy. Verse 11 says, and God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of, uh, of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. And fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Fear the name. There's power in the name of Jesus and you're starting to see it move in Ephesus as people's lives and hearts are being changed. But they started to play with the fear of the Lord. A couple of things I wanna highlight from this passage. The first one, and this always happens, God creates, but the world fakes. God creates, God moves, God does it, but the world will always fake and try counterfeit what God is doing. 
Paul is being used by God in the most miraculous way, extraordinary ways, to the point where literally sweatbands of his and handkerchiefs that he have touched his skin can get taken somewhere else and they can heal someone who is sick. I don't have to say that's out of the ordinary. Even in the realm of supernatural spiritual stuff, that's pretty crazy. And God knew that Paul, who had been so against him, who had evil in his heart, but God had grabbed a hold of him, turned him back, set him on this mission, meant that he was going to use Paul powerfully because of what God had done in the midst of Paul's heart. And as this is moving, it's starting to gain steam in Ephesus because people are starting to hear what's happening in the hall of Tyrannus. They're starting to hear about this guy, Paul. And as it garners attention, it doesn't just garner attention from those who are seeking truth and those who are, are seeking about the things of Jesus. It even garners attention from Jewish exorcists, those who actually cast out demons in the Jewish society that start to say, hey, you know what? As we capitalize on the economy of the city, this is another tool we can use. This is another weapon we can add to the armory. This is actually something we can add to our, our repertoire so that we can get what we want. And so they start to see this as God working through Paul is the real, authentic, genuine thing. But now fake kicks in because the sons of Sceva see this as a means to a desired end. And so the question I want to ask is, well, how do we see God move and work so powerfully in Paul, and yet we see it go so wrong in the sons of Sceva? I think we can look at how God uses Paul so powerfully, and Scripture will tell us. There's a few things I want to highlight. First thing I want to highlight is you can look throughout Scripture, especially through the Old Testament, and you can't miss that there are times where God is looking for someone of right heart to use powerfully and he doesn't find it. He actually struggles to find someone with the right faith and the right heart to actually work through powerfully. Ezekiel 22 is an example of that. In verse 30, God says these words, and I sought for a man among them, talking about those who are in the city of Jerusalem that at that time was in great distress, who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found none. There have been moments throughout history where God was looking and couldn't find anyone of right heart to use powerfully. But what I don't want us to miss is that God is always looking for those he can use. In 2, uh, 2 Chronicles 16 verse 9, it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. God's looking for those hearts that are blameless toward him where he can work powerfully. He sees Paul, he calls Paul, he uses Paul. But there are some things in a human heart that can disqualify being used powerfully by him. And the sons of Sceva give us some examples of it. There's many. But the three I want to highlight is number one, superiority. You can think you are so gifted and so superior that actually you getting involved with the work of God is you doing him a favor. Second thing is overqualification. These were men who would cast out evil spirits, not with the power of Jesus, not in his name. And so there's an overqualification which says, you know what, we're just adding Jesus to the repertoire we already have. We can choose if we're going to use it or not. And so there is things in the equation that, that aren't necessary for us to move in. And the last one is probably the most pervading one. It's the issue of pride. They want to use the name of Jesus 
not to bring the name of Jesus glory, but to bring them glory. They want to see glory come to the sons of Sceva. Let them be known, not the name of Jesus. And yet, so often we see God will use those who they believe, who actually believe they are not worthy, who believe they're not qualified, who actually believe they're not worthy of the glory of anything that happens. That's who God will use. It's why actually Paul will even say in uh, 1 Corinthians that God's power is made perfect in weakness. He even says in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians, a book he actually writes from Ephesus. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring nothing, things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God creates, but the world will always fake. Second thing I want to highlight is that right faith means fearing rightly. The sons of Sceva did not know the fear of the Lord, and they were going to learn it in the realest way. The lesson was about to be dished out. Because you see, they thought they had cracked the formula. They had, they had seen there's this new power. They had heard of this new lame. And they thought the formula was, well, there's power in the name of Jesus. Paul is the one who preaches the name of Jesus. And so Jesus does great things through Paul. Why can't he do great things through us? And they think that because they can use the formula that therefore they will get what they desire. I think we can fall for this trap so often where we believe, hey, if we get the mantra right, if we get our prayer right, if we get the words right and we say it in the right order and exactly the way it should be, then it will compel God to do what we have desired. It's sometimes how we will relate to God. And yet it is so far from it because it forgets the fear of the Lord. They think, cool, in the name of Jesus, the one who Paul preaches, come out. They're in the business of casting out evil spirits. So they get the formula and they enact the formula. And the spirit comes back at them and says, Jesus, I know, Paul, I recognize, but who are you? The truth they had forgotten was that you cannot move in the power of someone else's faith. You can't move in the power of someone else's faith. They had forgotten what had made these miraculous things possible. It was the heart of faith that Paul had. And so they get called out and the lesson gets dished out even as they are beaten and bloodied because these men had no relationship with Jesus. Jesus was not Lord. They had nothing to stand on that could make this happen. And they fall for the same trap because they did not know the fear of the Lord. Ephesus as a city did not know the fear of the Lord. Because you can have love, which is something God makes that is good. But you know what we can offer you? Lust. It's far cheaper. You know what? The Holy Spirit is good. It does crazy things. And things crazy things can happen in the power of the name of Jesus. But you know what? We have a whole menu of lesser spirits that you can take your pick from. You know what? Holiness is set up by the creator God for your flourishing. But you, what might be easier and better and more temporary right now to you is happiness. So why don't we go after that? 
What God creates for more, the world will always fake for less. What God creates for more, the world will always fake for less. They didn't know the fear of the Lord. And I love that even as the demon beats them bloody and blue, the story doesn't go down a road where it says, hey, and people so feared that demon that the demon's name became famous because this guy knows how to box. It actually says this, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Extolled means that because of the event, there was actually now praise and worship that is the, the result. Because of what had happened, because the fear of the Lord had been put into the sons of Sceva and been put into uh, the, na- the, the city of Ephesus, actually Jesus' name would be praised and worshipped all the more. The question I have for us, the challenge I've been going through the whole week is, do we know the fear of the Lord? Or have we become too familiar and too casual we're like, it's Jesus is my homeboy, and that's, that's the end of the story. Have we forgotten that we're dealing with the creator God of the universe? And that actually, if we want to stand on right faith, we need it to be fed by right fear. Fear of the Lord. And, and don't get me wrong, it's been preached. Fear of the Lord has to do with awe and reverence. It does. But that doesn't mean There isn't a space in there where we actually have genuine fear for the bigness of God, knowing that we are creation small, but a speck of dust that he could wipe away in an instant without any effort. And people will look at that and be like, well, that just makes God less approachable. If that was the only part of the story, I agree, but it's not. Because the story actually says, hey, that God that creator of the universe, the one who could wipe us out with no effort at all. He's the same God that would die on a cross who pursues us for relationship, pursues our broken, dark hearts so that we could know salvation and redemption in him. It doesn't say, hey, don't approach God. What it tells our heart is, hey, approach, but approach rightly. Because right fear will always lead to right faith. And that helps us in our relationship to God, in how we relate to him. And the response is always this, and that's what we see in Acts chapter 19. The response is repentance. Because when you know the fear of the Lord, it does something to our heart, where it pulls us back into alignment so that we can repent and go his way. That leads us to our last one, honor the name. Look at what happens as fear has set in. Verse 18 says, also, Many of those who were now believers came, confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. When the name is spoken, right fear of the name comes into it. And it leads to this response where the name will be honored. Because right fear will lead to right faith. And so what was prevailing in Ephesus, both outside the church and inside the church, were problems of false faith. It was present in both outside the church and inside the church. And that false faith came in two forms. The first false false faith we saw in the sons of Sceva. 
the faith that helps us relate to God that says, hey, you know what? God is a cosmic vending machine. It works on the belief that God serves me. And so when I have the right formula or the right currency and I put that in, then God will be compelled to, out of service to me to give me what I desire. He's the vending machine. Or the other side to it is the false faith that starts to see God and relate to God as a cosmic consultant. This is where we see the believers in the Ephesian church falling. Because it, no, it does say, it says, many of those who were now believers came. So we're not talking about the sons of Sceva or those who were outside the church. We're talking about those who were in the church who got saved in the hall of Tyrannus, who literally had had the apostle Paul as their pastor for two plus years. And yet this was still the reality that what was going on at home looked very different. Because they had related to God in their faith as a cosmic consultant. So in the same way that a business will get a consultant in, it's done under the authority of the business. And so as the consultant, you are designated to an area where you can give your expertise and have your say and give suggestions on what to do. But those are just suggestions. As the business, I can take 100% of what you say or I can take none of it. I can even take, I can cherry pick what I like and throw out what I don't. And for some of these Ephesian believers, God had done a work. God was doing a work over two years where friends and family were being, were completely changed. Hearts just changed because of the power of the name of Jesus. Seeing miraculous, powerful things happen through the apostle Paul so that the believers in Ephesus were starting to grow. And yet all of the good that was happening in the hall of Tyrannus hadn't made its way home. Because at home, under your bed, in your cupboard, there were still books of sorcery. Where the belief was, hey, God doesn't get to speak there. That's an area which is just for me. I'm not ready to give that up. I'm not ready to, to, to leave that old way. Even though all this new life has come in, that old way is still going to hang on. Because God, you don't get to speak here. But the fear of the Lord leads to repentance. And I love the picture that those sorcery books were brought, piled up, and they were of great value, 50,000 pieces of silver. So please don't think that the problem was small in the Ephesian church. It was rife. But it gets piled up, and in the sight of all, those books get burnt. And what they are saying in their repentance is, Lord, you have brought new life, and so that means all of the old will die, so that it is only you. What they did was move from a space where they were in false faith to a space of true faith. They repent of the false faith they had been walking in as they related to God and moved into true faith because true faith says this, you are the Lord of all. That means you don't serve me. That means you don't work for me. That means you actually are the one who calls the shots. It means I serve you. It means I don't get to de designate where you speak and where you don't. Uh, it means I don't actually have to define where your authority begins and ends. In fact, you have all authority because you're the Lord of all. Ben's going to join me on stage as we begin to wrap this up. But I was so struck and challenged by this question. Because I think so often we've known times where we've worked in these spaces. Where we've said, hey, you know what? We've made our deals with God even in prayer. 
God, you're the vending machine. What if I do this, then will you do this? What if I stop doing that, will you then do this? God, if I put my coin in, will I get my drink out? I don't want Coke Zero, I want a normal Coke. Or do we actually approach him as a consultant where we say, hey, you know what, God, in all that you speak, in all the good you have, in all your truth, you can speak in these areas of our life, but this one, this one's just for me. This is one where you don't get a say. Maybe you're one of those people who like, being generous in church, serving with your time, being a part of community, I'm in. Lord, it's all about you. But when it comes to giving my money, Lord, that's, that's just for me. Or maybe that's not the problem. Maybe you're generous in all ways. But you know what, God, when I want to move in with my girlfriend, that you don't get to touch that. You can consult in these areas, but you can't consult on this one. If he's the Lord of all, he, gets, he is over it all. He speaks to it all. And a great example of this is in the Old Testament, King Solomon. Even by secular standards, known as one of the wisest men in all of history and richest men in all history. So that meant he knew every earthly power as a king living in a palace. He knew every earthly pleasure as he would, would be served. As he had many wives and concubines, he knew every pleasure this world could offer. In the physical, he knew it all. And he writes this book of Ecclesiastes where basically, basically he's doing an audit. What is valuable in this world and what is not? And when he gets to the end of it, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, in verse 13, he says this, Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. After all, this is all that matters, these two things. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. A guy who knew every natural pleasure you could imagine, who knew what it meant to have wealth beyond understanding, he gets to this point where he says, you know what the true value of life is? It's only in these two things. Fear God and do what he tells you. The challenge for us is do we know the fear of the Lord? The challenge for us is like the Ephesian church, are we willing to let what happens in the lecture hall make its way home? Are we able to fear God and do what he tells us. Because sometimes we're good at one and not the other. We'll do what God tells us, but when it comes to fearing him, we're just approaching him too casually. We forget who we're talking to. I heard it said, and I think it's so helpful. If before a prayer, you just took 20 to 30 seconds, just to consider who you are about to talk to, your prayer would immediately look different. Don't get me wrong. God is the, he, he's the God who pursues us wants relationship, he is a soft, he's a father. But we can't forget that he is the one to fear, to approach with awe and reverence. And we get to do what he tells us, not as a limiting thing, but a freeing thing. Not as something that's gonna take away the fun, but actually something that's gonna set us up to flourish, to actually walk in the purpose and the identity he has given us. We're about to go into a time of communion. And one thing I love about communion, because we, we've spoken about it before, there's different aspects in this remembering what Jesus did as we celebrate communion together. Different aspects that can come out and come to the fore. 
You'll have some communions where it's very celebratory. It's a cheers type of a moment. Look at what, look at what Jesus did for us. But you get other moments like today where actually it's a moment that sets us up for great repentance, where God can actually realign what maybe has been misaligned, where God can put His finger on something in our heart that He's saying, hey, you haven't, you, you've been consulted, I've, I need to consult here. This is something where we need to speak about. This is something that needs to change. Paul actually gives us instructions in 1 Corinthians 11 concerning it, where he says, let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. This is a moment where I wanna encourage you, maybe this is a moment where we need to repent and recapture our fear of the Lord. And what better way than to examine ourselves, examine our hearts before we take communion as we celebrate and remember what Jesus did. Because don't get me wrong, He's gonna point it out. He's also gonna make the means for us to repent, to turn 180 from that thing, to walk His way and not go our own way because it's all about Him. It's about what He accomplished on the cross. It's about His body that was broken and His blood that was shed. And so that's what we stand on. It's not about our strength inside. It's about knowing that God makes us right, that our heart is different because of His love.